Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. Uh, I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome back to the show um, and uh, yeah, great to have you all listening again. And uh, I'm really um, honoured to welcome back um, a, a guest to the show who was on a couple of years ago. Um, great guy, a musician, author and just all around great human being. <laughs> um, Andre Henry, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's great to have you here. And um, you've been up to a lot in the last last few years. Um, a lot of music, mm-hmm. um, a lot of new music, and now you've written a book. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, and it's called um, "All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep," um, and it's. Uh, um, I'm excited to read it. I haven't had a chance to, I didn't get a, a chance to read it beforehand. Um, but, um, I'm excited to read it and to talk about it today. So, mm-hmm. um, what was the journey behind writing this book? The kind of, what led you to write it in the first place? Sure. Um, so a couple of years ago, I wrote a blog called to all the white friends I couldn't keep. It was an open letter to uh, some of you know some folks that I used to consider very close, like friends and family that I had been trying to tell about you know what it's like living as a black person in America. And they were not listening. And a couple years passed, and a couple of them were online saying things like, "Oh, Andre's a racist. Andre hates white people and stuff." And I just felt like you can't just go around saying, that I hate white people without a receipt. Like, show me a screenshot of the text message or the blog post or the tweet or whatever where I ever said that. And so I decided to write a receipt of my love for these people, which was the open letter. And that blog went viral and it attracted the attention of a literary agent who reached out and said that he felt that there was a book that could be written um, from that blog, which... So we started working on that proposal. And by the time I finished the proposal, I had shifted the angle on it because by then I realized I didn't really want to spend a lot of time arguing with white people who don't want to listen to me, you know, but there were a lot of black people that were probably, would probably know that experience and probably had some of those things that compelled me. some, some of those same things that compelled me to try to, work so hard to persuade white people. And I wanted to write a book for them to say, hey, um, first off, there is hope. Racism is a solvable problem, you know, or we can at least fight back against it through nonviolent struggle, which is another journey that I've been on that I talk about in the book. But also, like, don't waste your time and energy arguing with these people who are not movable. That's a good approach. Hmm. Yeah, because there are people like that. Um, I've seen them on Twitter and, and, you know, um, some people who, yeah, it's, and it's just really sad, especially as a, as a white person kind of knowing other white people do that. Um, mm-hmm. and they're so ignorant. It's, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Um, I'm not surprised, um, at the response, you know, um, and, you know, it's, and what you, I think one of the things that I've read that you talk about in the book is 
like part of the solution to this to this problem to systemic racism and it's not it's not what maybe what people think um Mm -hmm. so what is um because it's not about civil discourse or other things like that um Mm -hmm. or just or things like education which are the things that people Mm -hmm. maybe would would think it would be you know Mm -hmm. what's what was your perspective on on how we solve these on how we solve these problems yeah well a lot of this stems from the fact that a lot of people don't understand the nature of the problem to begin with, right? So if you diagnose mm-hmm. the problem incorrectly, then you're going to end up prescribing the wrong type of treatment. And so globally, there is a misconception of racism and what it is. So people think that it's just kind of like this attitude that people have about folks uh, of a different skin color and that it is primarily about emotional hatred or something like that. And that's definitely a part of racial injustice and uh, and racism. But usually what we're talking about when we talk about racism is actually how power is being used, how power is distributed throughout society, how power is consolidated and used in certain institutions, which you know, you live in the UK. I live in America, which was a which is a former part of the British Empire, and we understand that a huge part of the program of the of the building of that empire was slavery. Right? Uh, I write in the book that Britain couldn't have become "quote unquote" great without the sugar plantations in Jamaica. Um, and so I, I bring that up to say, oh, sorry, let me just say one more thing about that. The, the profits made from the, the slave trade in the Caribbean were used directly to build, you know, industry in Britain, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so and you so you can you can look at that and, and see. Oh, also. And then, you know. That that same government imposed laws on the island of Jamaica, you know, forbidding people to, um, you know, speak certain languages or forbidding them to read or or the kind of thing. And and, and Americans did the same thing in the U.S. or, or the colonies, the British colonies at the t- time, which eventually became the the, the United States. Yeah. So I, I bring all of this up to say that racism is baked into the building of these societies. That these society that the breaking of black bodies is essential to the story of the of the birth of these great nations right so that's one thing the other thing is that those institutions have not been you know so radically changed that they don't operate on sweet so i was saying that these nations that were built on the sweat and suffering of black people as dr king says it um, they none of them have had like this huge radical shift where they say, okay, we have to uh, reap, we have to pay reparations to those who have been harmed. We have to undo all of the inequities that were baked into our societies. None of, and to my knowledge, none of these nations have done that. So when we talk about what it means to fight for racial justice or to interrupt white supremacy or anti-blackness, this is usually what many of us are talking about. We're talking about the ways that these societies were built, the inequities that were built into the ways that these societies work, 
And the ways that those structures and institutions continue to exist and operate like that in the present. Okay, so that's first off, that's just understanding the diagnosis and, you know, understanding the problem. So how do we go about doing that? Well, the way we go about pushing that agenda forward is the same way that it's been done throughout history, which is through the it's through ordinary people organizing to resist the flow of that common sense and of that that status that racist status quo. We saw this in America in the mid 19th century in the civil rights movement with you know organizations like the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. You know, it was a civil rights movement and they were organizing nonviolent struggle to oppose, you know, this oppressive regime. And, you know, we saw that in other parts of the world too, you know, the, the, uh, the anti-apartheid movement at least started as a nonviolent movement, uh, Gandhi's movement against British, British rule in India, you know, these nonviolent struggles have been used around the world, you know, to, uh, to, yeah, to push change forward, to push forward social progress. Yeah, and yeah, like you say, our, my country is not uh, hasn't. Yeah, it's quite shameful um, what my country is guilty of. Uh, my ancestors are guilty of um, in perpetuating this and spreading this around and building off the backs of it um, and creating mm-hmm. this system and almost exporting this system to mm-hmm. other countries. You know, and um, um, and other parts of Europe have done that too. You know, it's um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, and mm-hmm. you're right about 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 move about movements of resistance as well. That um, yeah, and it's uncomfortable, I guess, for some people because people want to talk about non-violent. You know, they want to talk about you know when people talk about revolution and use words like that. It's kind of, it kind of scares people, but. Sorry, that's, James, that's, your, that's, that's your uh, signal for, is going for, in and out so much. Like people, um, people are afraid of words like revolution uh, because I think that the first thing that comes to mind for them, well, I think two things. First off, I think one, yes, what comes to mind is, you know, armed struggle is violence, right? But then also I think that people don't actually understand, and this goes back to what I was saying before, is that people don't really understand that racism is a radical problem for countries especially those countries that were born of the British empire, you know, like, and when I say radical, I mean, literally at the root of the building of those societies, you know, the, you have to think about it in America that several of the folks who shaped the the constitution, the declaration of independence, these founding documents, our economic system, um, and and things like that, they were slaveholders, you know, a, num- a good number of them, right? And many of them had interest, had specific interest in keeping the institution of slavery alive. And if they had an interest in keeping the institution of slavery alive, then that means that they had the, they had an interest in keeping human hierarchy alive because that was the ideology that went to justify this institution of oppression, right? And since and since we have had no serious revision in America in particular, no, no like, yeah. of course we've had amendments, right, to the constitution. Um, but 
but many but 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 America, the United States is not willing to rewrite the Constitution. Right. And that's the issue is that if if the foundational document it has racism baked into it, or at least the interest of racist base baked into it, because the Constitution doesn't have explicit racist language in it. But if it has the interests of slaveholders baked into it, that means that 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 means that that issue is a radical issue. And a radical issue requires a radical solution. And I don't think that a lot of people have come to grips with that. And honestly, when I'm writing my book, I know that a lot of white people don't understand that. But I'm writing to I'm not writing to white people in the book. I'm writing to people like me years ago, right? And I didn't know that years ago, you know, or I didn't see it. I didn't yeah. see it that way because that's not how it was framed to me growing up in the United States. Uh, racism was framed as something like a virus, right? Like, the, so it, it overtook a, a portion of the population for a time and then was, uh, treated by the civil rights movement and now we don't have to talk about it anymore that's how it was presented to me you know uh, that is the story that we tell about it and from you know from from what i hear from black people who live in in europe and other places where you know the these large white uh colonial empires were or colonial powers were you know many people tell the same story that all throughout the white world white people are telling the same lie, which is racism is not a problem here. Because people don't want to reckon with what I said earlier, that the breaking Mm -hmm. of body, the breaking of black bodies is essential to their, to the stories of their founding. Yeah, absolutely. That's why, that's why it's important for all white people to educate themselves. Um, do anti-racist work and learn about what we've done and unlearn, or you know, white privilege. That it's it's yeah, because you're absolutely right. Um, and yeah, um, you know, and it's it's un- it's uncomfortable to hear when you know that people like when like you know, I know people like me, um, as in white people, have been responsible for that, and that's. Um, yeah, it's yeah, and but that that discomfort is necessary, <laughs> so um, for for us to for change to happen. So, um, uh, one of the things that I know you, that you talk about in the book is um, that mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's historical divides between black and non-black people, and how they can be expressed. Yeah, you know in, what like, I'm talking about is anti-blackness, which so tell us a bit about, is important about to that. talk about because. Sometimes when we have these conversations about race and racial justice, the particular struggles of Black and non-Black people are often conflated into one. Um, and so that actually obscures the, the ways that people of color have also bought into white supremacist thinking and anti-Black thinking and anti-Black common sense uh, and the ways that they have sided kind of with uh with whiteness you know or or you could i think uh, i think it might even be appropriate to just talk about like how 
we have been colonized in our thinking and that can happen to black people and people of color. And so I tell some stories in the book, like I went to, I went to rent an apartment one day when I was living in New York city and I was talking to a landlord in Harlem. And when we talked on the phone, he was so excited to talk to me and he even offered to be my friend, but the look on his face when he saw me, you know, was kind of this noticeable uh, look of disappointment on his face and he refused to rent the apartment to me. And so when I tell that story, especially in a book titled All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, I'm sure that most people would assume that the landlord is white, but he was actually Asian American, right? And I talk about how, you know, when, you know, these common experiences that Black people have, like walking into stores and being followed or, you know, being uh, viewed as suspicious by the police. And the thing is that oftentimes these stories don't necessarily directly involve white people, they involve people of color. And there needs to be some kind of uh, explanation for that. So what I talked about in the book is how all of us live in the same society. We all receive the same education that white people receive. And so the message that we all get is that white people are superior, (laughs) you know, in these very subtle ways, though, like there's no textbook that tells us that. But, you know, like when we look at like uh, the 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 histories that were told, you know, and what histories are are left out, you know, like we have Black History Month in February. The rest of the year we we learn about, you know, white people when we uh, hear about uh, when, when we what we learn in music, you know, and and all of the associations with white classical music having these associations of being refined and um, you you get what I'm saying, you know, or the beauty standards that, that, or it's like a book I read years ago where this, it's a, it was a book about masculinity, which I don't read books about masculinity anymore, but back then I did. And it's about manhood. And the author keeps assuming that every guy reading this book is imagining themselves with a blonde haired, you know, blue eyed woman, you know, like there are these little, there are these little ways that society keeps telling us mm-hmm. that white people stand as the default human being or the ideal form of humanity and everybody else is some kind of aberration or variation. And so the thing that often happens with black people and people of color is that we start aspiring to assimilate those qualities that are usually associated with white people, right? And one of the ways that we tried, and so we start trying to distance ourselves basically from our own people. And the way that we do that usually is by putting down our people, our own people. And for people of color, especially, I I shouldn't say especially, but for people of color, that temptation often expresses itself in anti-blackness where people want to distance themselves from blackness so they can be closer to whiteness, right? Because these, because blackness and whiteness kind of frame the whole um, ideology of human hierarchy, where white people are seen as human and black people are seen as non-human, right? And then you have these people in between. So basically, the short the short way of saying this is that the the cover charge into whiteness is anti-black violence. It's it's the most it's the most common way that people try to climb the rungs of human hierarchy 
Mm. Yeah, and I guess that's a really interesting story because I mean I made that assumption as well that that mm. that part, that guy that made you that, that wanted to rent you the flat was what was was white, mm. but it, yeah. That's a really interesting concept. I've never thought of that before, um, but it it makes sense, I suppose, in a in a in a in a system which is set up to favour white people. That yeah, it actually goes it goes to such a deep level that people start can start aspiring to mm-hmm. to be like a white person because they're told that that's what it, what life is meant to be like. And yeah, yeah wow, that's that's really profound really mm. profound um uh, and it just shows how deep this stuff goes um um uh, yeah and um i mean how is expressing kind of your i guess your story your experiences what you've learned through art and that you know music and writing um how is doing that how has that process yeah been part of your journey yeah, well you know i would say that kind of so i'm a singer songwriter yeah, i'm a musician that's that's always been my first love and my first uh my first discipline and so before i ever you know this is my first book that i'm publishing in march but the time it's kind of a memoir and it covers the years from 2016 up to like 2020 ish um, but when I was actually living through that time, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't compiling all of these essays or anything like that to write a book one day. I was writing songs because that's what I do, you know? So, you know, I was writing songs about these feelings that I was having about the white friends who wouldn't listen to me and writing songs about how it feels to be black in America and all of that. And so when I came to writing the book, I literally thought about these, all these songs that I wrote over the years and said, okay, I wonder if I can write a chapter for each song. You know, now, I don't name them the same names as my songs, you know, but that was kind of how I approached it. So when you read the book, like the first words in, in the book are some lyrics from my song Delusional, because I feel like that song in itself could summarize that whole first section of the book. You know, because it's all, all about how, you know, white people have the privilege of just saying that they don't see things or don't. Yeah. Saying saying that things are not real, that black people experience every day. So, you know, that's really how it ties in for me is that for me, it's all integrated. It's all connected, you know. And so in a way, this book is kind of uh, an expansion on my music, because in a song, you have three minutes to make your point. And it needs to be memorable. So you don't have a lot of space or a lot of time to really like unpack what you have to say, even though you can say a lot in three minutes. So if you listen to Delusional, you'd understand the first two chapters, uh, the first actually four or five chapters of the book. But if you read the first five chapters of the book, it would take you much deeper into the idea. Mm-hmm. So like the song is like the feeling, right? And the book includes the feeling, but it also has more of the story, right? More mm-hmm. of the story and a lot of the kind of uh, theoretical parts around it too, because the book has a mix of 
you know, narrative. It's a mix of memoir, but it also has a good mix of like history and uh, social movement theory and things like that. That's really interesting. I've always loved, I always prefer listening to music though when I know the story behind it. And, um, and this is almost the reverse, isn't it? Because people familiar with your music will read the book and maybe recognize some of the things they've already heard. Um, I, I just I love that when mm-hmm. when there's mm-hmm. kind of a almost a fusion between different types of art created by the same person, and they kind of complement each other. And yeah, there's that emotional connection when you listen to music that. Um, and that gives you actually, when you come to, I suspect when you come to read a book, if it's, if it's the same person and it's the same things that you're talking about, that almost gives you a way into the Oh, book. for sure. I think that if you know, people, uh, people who are familiar with my music, before you've even started reading, you know, I think that they're going um, to find this, I think they're going to find a lot of this familiar, you know, um, there's a lot that maybe they don't know. Of course they won't know, you know. Um, and then for folks who have never experienced my music, you know, there's enough in there for you to get an idea of what my music is about. So I, I have experienced a couple of people who read the book and they would never heard my music before. And then that made them want to go check it out, which is cool. Mm, yeah, you see, I think, yeah, I think that would be that would be the case. Um, yeah, um, that's the beauty of art. Um, it, you know, it's, um, that's why I love that's why I love creativity and um love talking about this stuff but um what was the biggest lesson you learned when you were writing this book mm-hmm. that you know that what, what did it what, what well, i think that what did it teach you you know when as i was finishing the book i realized that what i thought was an anti-racism journey is actually a decolonizing journey for myself and that you know there is so much that I need to learn about what what beliefs come from the the trauma of colonization on my my ancestors and and my people and what comes from me you know as a individual what comes from the traditions of my ancestors and people you know like trying to parse those things out which I don't think that I really understood when I started writing. And my desire to understand that has only grown since, you know, coming to finish the book. So I'm, I'm interested in really examining, like, where some of our beliefs and values and assumptions about the world and what it means to be human and what it means to be a good human, where they actually come from. And that's the journey I'm on now is, you know, I've been reading more about imperialism and trying to figure out, like, how do I trace the genealogy of these ideas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's, a, that's a big conversation because we, which goes really deep, you know. It, it, you know, when I started mm-hmm. my, what everyone calls deconstruction, I, I don't call it that anymore, but um, I, <laughs> I didn't, re- I didn't have no idea how, how deep it was going to take me, and the, the layers that it would involve and you know and it took me into anti-racism it took me into mm-hmm. decolonizing and and you know and you keep peeling off layers um and that you start to see that systems that 
the systems mm. that were created by your ancestors and what they have done to the world and done to people yeah. and how these things need to need to end and um and you just keep going down the rabbit hole and seeing mm-hmm. just the levels of the levels that it impacts every part of our lives it it then becomes much more kind of mm-hmm. important you know and imminent to do something about it and um you know and that's a really mm-hmm. great journey to be on um I'm excited to see where that that journey goes goes for you. Um, um, yeah, um, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've the book. You wrote the book for for people of color, black people. Um, what's the what is the message that you would want them them to hear in the book? And of course, the people like me, white people, you know, honestly, might, I might be reading your book as well. Like what? What? Yeah, and uh, obviously we're not your intended. Yeah. I'm not your. I'm so not your intended audience. Because I didn't. People like because me. I didn't. But what would you want people okay. like me to get get from yeah, it as so well? Like, because I didn't write it to white people, I don't really have you know on the top of my mind a takeaway for white people. I think that white people can get something from reading the book for sure. You know, uh, if nothing else, seeing the way that white people behave in the book, I'm sure that, I mean, I've heard it already, like white people being, telling me, oh man, I was surprised sometimes to see, you know, some of the things that you describe are things that I've done, you know? And I think that that can be helpful for them, you know? But for black people in particular, you know, I say this, is that I want for black people to understand, I want for black people like who are, who are like I was, to understand that there are a bunch of non-Black people telling us that we have to do certain things in order to be free and putting all these strategies in front of us that are really just attempts to shut us down. You know, They're selling us a bag of goods on social change that is never gonna work. You know, And so what we have to do is learn from our predecessors about how to fight for our freedom. And the other thing is that when when people do start doing that work, to know that, that some of the people that they really love are gonna be their most ardent opposers. You know, people are going to oppose them and it's okay to let them go and to walk away from them and with, with and you don't just lose, you know, you're not just going to lose people, but you're going to gain, you're going to gain new people who share your values and your goals and share that desire to fight for the world that ought to be. And you might also, like me, find yourself having more space for yourself to become a more authentic version of yourself. I think that's kind of universal, though, you know, like maybe not on the topic of race, but whenever you are going after, you know, some kind of real change in the world, you're going to make enemies, you know, and you're going to make new friends, you know. Um, And if you stick to it, you know, the fight for a better world will always change you in the process too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, and like you say, Mm -hmm. there's a wider truth there. Like when you go on that journey, 
of unlearning everything and seeing things as they are and seeing mm-hmm. how things need to change, you do lose friends. And mm-hmm. you do, but you do make new friends. And, you know, that is, that, that's true as well. Um, yeah. Um, thank you for sharing today. Um, Andre, it's been really, yeah, thanks for having me. Really great to talk to you. Um, really great to hear from you. Um, yeah, it's always great to, to have you on. And um, I highly recommend everyone listen to Andre's music and read his books. Um, and because uh, they're, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading this book. Yeah, know, the best place, yeah, the best so place to find me is find on my you, website, it's uh, andrehenry.co. Twitter that has the link to my email list where I send out insight about racial justice and updates on my music. Um, all my links to my social are there, you know, but I would recommend people go to my website, join my email list, because then, you know, any way that you want to connect is going to come straight to your inbox. Fantastic. And yeah, I highly recommend that too. I'm subscribed to, to that newsletter and it's been really, uh, really helpful for me on my, on my own journey. Um, you know, and it's not always comfortable reading mm. that newsletter, but it's, but again, you know, we need to be discomforted, uh, especially white people need to be discomforted. Um, so, yeah, um, and the book is out in March, I think, um, and it may already be out by the time this podcast goes out. So um, definitely go and get that as well. Thanks um, for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Andre. It's, it's uh, great to have you on the show.